Okay, and there it is. The hour has struck and we are live. And it's my absolute pleasure to be here on episode three of the Hunger for the Hustle podcast with Aaron Grider. Now, Aaron has been riding horses and winning lap races longer than I've been alive with over 4,000 wins under his belt. Aaron, Aaron is now featuring as a TV analyst on NBC, on Fox News and ESPN are covering horse races all across America. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce him. Aaron, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for that uh, kind introduction. And it's, it's my honor. I'm really excited to be on with you. Awesome. And like I say, you know, I was, I was doing my research and reading up on you. We've been chatting for a while. But yeah, you have actually been riding horses for longer than I've even been on the planet. I was born in 88, so oh, yeah. you were out there on the saddle a year before I was even thought about. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so now tell me, Aaron, where where did it all start for you? Where did the horse racing, when did it become something that you found you wanted to do? It was when I was such a young child. My grandparents used to go to the races all the time, just loved the excitement and the energy of it. They'd go out there and they loved to, to bet on the horses and um, we're very active in that. So I would go with them when I was just a young child. And, you know, by the time I was four years old, I said I would be a jockey and I was afraid of horses and, you know, nobody, nobody in my family was ever around them, but I just remember the excitement and the size of them and the power and just like seeing things about me just used mm -hmm. to get me excited. So that was when I first said it was four years old. Yeah. And, uh, I know you had a pretty rough start, right? You got fired twice in one day, I believe <laughs> that, that, was your, that was your first day. Tell, tell, tell me a little bit more about that story. Well, I left home when I was 13 years old to go to a farm. Still had never been on a horse and I was still afraid of them, but I went to this farm. They said I could stay for the summer and learn about horses and then learn how to ride. So I was very excited about that. And during that summer, I got on my first horse. And again, I was, I was fearful, but at the same time, loving what I was doing. It was the first time I was on there and my, my excitement for what my dream was, was much bigger than my fear was. And after that ride, the, the gentleman that was teaching me said, son, you're a natural. So I was excited and I, I seemed to lose my fear after that point when I realized how exciting it was. I lived with him throughout that summer and I called my parents at the end of the year and said, is it okay if I don't come home? And that's not what most 13 year olds say that have a good family life and, and love their parents. But they knew I had a dream and they said, you know, go for it. And so I left, I left home. I turned 14 that summer and dropped out of school in the ninth grade, spent focused 100% of time on my horse race, you know, what was going to be my career. And then when I finally got my license at 16 years old, I was super excited. I finally went from getting on horses at the farm. Now this is big time. I get to go to the racetrack and I'm licensed and, you know, I'm going to be on a real racetrack that I used to watch when I was a kid, watch all my idols over it. And so I got on the first horse and was traveling good. And all of a sudden the stirrup broke on the saddle and I fell off. But unfortunately my other foot got hung up in the other stirrup and it drove me for about 30 or 40 yards. And then the horse ran off and, and I got loose. And I remember one of the racing officials coming up on an outriding pony, coming up on the pony and said, son, you have a license? And even though I was dirty and all messed up, I, I got up and I was still proud. I'm like, yes, I do have a license. They said, can I see it? And I 
gave him my license and then he went boom, boom, galloping off. And I'm like, that was my license. I didn't know what happened. But then yeah. they called me to the, the official's office and told me, you're not good enough to be here. You need more experience. You need to go back to the farm, kid. And I was devastated. So okay. I drove back to the farm crying. It's, you know, 16 years old. I just had my driver's license for a week or two. Just got this license. I thought, boy, everything's coming together. And I drove back to the farm crying. And I spoke with the gentleman that taught me and then called my father. And my father said, don't worry about that. It's going to happen often. You know, you're, you're going to get stumble over things. And he said, you know, you're capable. You know, you're good enough. Don't listen to what they say. You just got to regroup. So I left that day and went to another racetrack seven hours north of there in Northern California. And I, early in the morning, I walked around looking for a job and the trainer said, yes, you can get on these five horses for me today. And I said, oh, this is great. So first one I got on, I thought I was doing okay, but then the horse just got too tough for me. And back then I was, at 16 years old, I was 87 pounds and like 4'11". I was not very strong and the horse just ran off with me. So after that, I came back and trainer was upset, but I stood there waiting for my next horse and he brought one out and somebody else was on it and brought another one out and somebody else was on it. And I'm like, where's my other horse? He said, I don't need you, son. He said, you can't hold a horse. So I was fired. So I got ruled off in Southern California and fired in Northern California within 24 hours of being so excited because I finally got my license. So you know, ah. setbacks, setbacks definitely happen to everybody. And at the time you think, you know, I, I look back thinking at, at that point, I'm like, man, I, I wasted three years. I was away from my family. I left home. I left school. Now what? And it wasn't until I brushed it off and just said, cowboy up, you know, go forward. And then things started happening, you know, and it was, I look back on everything bad that's happened. Some of them I could have avoided. And at the time I wish I would have, but I've learned from all of them. And that's what gets us to greater places as we get older. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And thank goodness you didn't quit then, otherwise the world would have been starved of of your talents, right? And and all the things that you you did in the horse racing world from from then forward. Thank you. So let's let's fast forward. We're going to do a quantum leap now in time from then to now. And where are you? Where are you at now? I'm I'm led to believe you're you're not still racing, are you? I am still riding. I yeah, still riding, but not I, racing, or still racing I as still well. Professionally race. Yeah. I don't race nearly as much, a lot by choice. A lot of it was because I'm choosing to ride selective types of horses. And at the same time, it's not all my choice to slow down because young kids come up underneath you just like I was a young kid at the time. People get excited about them. They think they're hungrier. And I get it. You know, it's like I've got some people get upset when other people take their mounts. But I know that every time I was moving up. I was getting somebody else's on the, along the way. You know, it's it's a, a business where I get fired literally every day. Um, yeah. I, I go out there and ride five horses, and if I lose on one or two of them, the first excuse is the jockey. So I get fired. So it's you know you learn a lot about just brush off your shoulder and and go on. And you know that's what horses have taught me so much is about life. Is like you know you, you got to put it behind you because. I race every 30 minutes if I'm busy, you know, throughout the day, it's races are every 30 minutes. So if I'm, wow. if I'm going to be so upset because I got in trouble in the last race and I got fired and I got yelled at, what am I doing for, I'm not doing justice to the next horse or the next owners that I'm riding for if I go out with that attitude. So it's always about now, 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 turn it on, get your game on. This is your first one today. The last one's over now go. And so it's taught me a lot about that, but my business is slowing down and, and, you know, I'm looking forward to, 
you know, my next venture and I want to go out and speak and I want to help children. I want to help people that are, you know, my age and up. It's, you know, I, I want to help everybody. I love what my life has given to me and, and I just want to share the blessings that I've had and let young kids know it's possible. Even when people told me I'd be too big and I couldn't do it and you're too scared, they were right, but I've done it. And then I mm. want to show the older people, you know, it's like, it's never too late. And, you know, I'll just be starting my career. I just turned 50, but it's, I'm excited about my new career. And, you know, it's to me, I'm as excited now as I was at 16 to ride horses. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like uh, someone I know we, we follow a lot. Les Brown says you're never too old to learn and never too young to teach. Absolutely. And, and it's, you're entering and it's wonderful to see. I can resonate with it. I'm doing the same and a new chapter in your life. And I know how we met was, through some some courses with some mentors training us to, to be speakers right. and and now even to to just improve on our on our lives you know and invest in ourselves to to take us to the next level I, I don't want this to be all about me i want to tell you one of the main reasons i was so happy to be on your podcast obviously we're in a great group of supportive people but you inspire me and you know it's like to me i was i was honored when when you know, you said I could be on and I love the way you've gone about things and the, the amazing changes and, and the total zoned in focus saying I'm all in and, you know, that's what it's going to take. But to me, I just got chills talking about you. It's, uh, to me, it's the coolest thing to, to watch others, you know, watch others in this group and see their wins and count their wins. And, you know, I think we've just built like a big family that I can applaud you and say, you know, I look up to you. So thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words. I really, I really appreciate it. And um, man, you, you inspire me. Obviously, I've been doing my research into you, reading up on you, and the the feelings mutual. I can tell you, it's it's great to see. You know, you've had a, a long, a long and illustrious illustrious career with many many wins. And it's, I, I suppose, you know, winning is something that you do you do get used to doing. That's the focus of why you do it. You want to win. I don't know. You must have. Let's say you've won four thousand. I know a bit about horse racing. You must have lost a lot more than that, right? I've learned about losing too. Yes, <laughs> I've, lost, <laughs> yeah. I've lost probably twenty-five to twenty-six thousand times. So, you know, I'm I'm losing eighty-five percent to ninety percent of the time. So, you know, in my great years, yeah. I was winning at twenty percent. Now I don't ride as much and don't win as much. So it's in the lower numbers. So I lose much more even when you're doing great you're in the hall of fame if you ride 30 years and win win at 20 percent and lose at 80 percent so you know when they tell you about counting your wins and each win no matter how big it is it counts you know count your blessings and count your wins my my career and my life has been documented i mean you can go and see my loses my losses my wins it's all on it's all on paper and you know i mean obviously there's more wins and losses in, in your life in itself but i've learned from all those losses on horses that have taught me about how to accept and handle the ones that I lose in life, you know, how to move forward and know that if things happen in life that I, you know, am not proud of or things in life that, you know, I felt I was defeated in, I know just around the corner, I got to brush that race off because the next one's going to be bigger and it's more important and I'm going to succeed. So, you know, there's always lessons. Yeah. Yeah. And I tend to find myself that you learn more from, from the times you fail and the times you don't win than the times you win because when you win you're just coasting along everything's great everything's nice and and 
it, it's quite easy to be to be happy when you haven't got a struggle but when things aren't going right and things fail and you get knocked back after knock back and setback after setback that's when you have to dig deep inside yourself or you know perhaps talk to the people around you your, your friends your family your peers and draw draw motivation and inspiration from them and think this is this is why this perhaps went wrong and this is what I'm going to do in the future to try and make sure it doesn't happen again. But even that sometimes doesn't work out right. You're like, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And then a couple of weeks later, you are in the same spot. It's, it's just life. You've got to get used to it and not let it. I had an not... agent that was 18 or 19 years old, so I'd been riding two to three years at the time. And I used to come home and they used to have a replay show. So you could record the races that you would win and, you know, I was all excited every time you won, but I recorded all the races I won. And it would be fun for me to, like, have them on a reel and be able to watch them and everything. And, you know, he always told me, he said, that's great that you do that, but you're recording the wrong races. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you won. There was nothing better you could have done but win. He said, I want you to stop recording your winners and start recording your losers. He said, watch those races. There's different moves in a race and different moves in life. You could have done something different or you know, gone inside of that horse instead of the outside or whatever you might have done, you could have done something different. Watch those races and learn from those. You're not going to learn from your wins. So I remember him telling me that as a teenager and, and I did. I started recording my losses and it's amazing how many more tapes I had of losses than I did of wins. <laughs> uh, I don't record them anymore. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. Now, I know you've even rode in, in, in my home country, England and and I believe you you rode some of the Queen's horses. That's right, isn't it? I have, yes. I've been fortunate enough to go over there a few times and and rode in London at Royal Ascot and then rode at York. And to me, Royal Ascot was the best place I had ever gone, the most um, unique race course, and just the yeah. history. You know, the Queen goes all the time to the races, and it's such a big part of her life. And uh, it just was an honor going over there, but then being able to meet her and have ridden for her. And so... To me, it's, you know, it, it was always, when I was young, they always said it was the sport of kings, and that's what it's called. But I never understood why. But, you know, after riding for so long, and I've, you know, ridden for the queen and met her and the ruler of Dubai, uh, ride for quite a bit and been over there many times. And then I used to go to Saudi Arabia a lot, and I ride, rode for the Minister of Defense and, uh, in Saudi Arabia. And so it's like, I, I didn't realize till I got older what they meant when it was, when they said it's the sport of kings, you know, it's like you can have your neighborhood guys that have horses and get lucky, but from hundreds of years ago, it was the kings and queens that brought this racing to its excitement and to the level it's at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it has a long and, and big line of heritage in many countries, and it's more it's more than just a sport to many countries. It's you know, it's a it's a culture, it's a lifestyle. It's they live it, they breathe it, um, and you know. As well, you know, as well as I do, that it, there's a lot more to horse racing than what you see on the track. There's yeah. a, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of care, and it takes a team of many different people to take a horse to the track right. and to get it, get to get it to win. Right when you're when you're on the track and and the gates go out, it's just you and the horse. But really, that is the only time. It is just you and the horse, isn't it? Aside from that, well, yes, and it's like I, a lot of people, as you say. I'm glad you brought that up, but so many of them in any business, they don't get the credit because you see me winning. They say, oh, he's a great jockey, but it, yeah, it takes the grooms and the hot walkers and all the 
caretakers and the owners and whoever it is to get to that point. And I got the glory or the blame, you know, depending on where you finish, but you know, in any business, that one guy that's a great CEO, he's got a lot of people that work below him that brought him to that point and was able to, to do it. So yes, it's, it's a lot of hands that, that touch victory along the way. Yeah. Right. A, a collaborative driven, a collaborative achievement driven effort is something I've been, been chiming in with recently. That I think that's a tongue twister. I like the way you say it. It is, isn't it? I'll try again. A, a team. No, it's completely gone. <laughs> we'll come back to it. That <laughs> tell me. Obviously, you've you've had a lot of wins, and and you just touched on it there. That Royal Ascot may possibly be it, but is there kind of one win that sticks out to you that just made you just immensely proud and blew you away more than any other? I know it might be a hard question to answer, but no, it's really not. It's it's uh, it's pretty easy for me. It's it was in 1987 so many many moons ago but my father was my biggest fan and he'd go out to the races all the time and one day he was going away for two days and he was going to miss the races the following day and he came up and gave me a hug said i love you son go win a race with me tomorrow and i said all right dad love you and that was it and so that night i was sleeping and the police came and you know woke me up and i remember him coming to my bedside and waking me up and told me my father had had a heart attack and he went off the side of a mountain in his car and he was 42 years old. And I just remember that moment thinking, you know, my life has changed, but I'm going to make him proud and take on the responsibilities. And, you know, I'll look after my mother and my brother. And, and, uh, the next day my mother said, you know, I'm not sure if you should ride, just, you know, your mind and everything else. And I'm so upset. And I said, no, the last thing he said is he gave me a hug and said, I love you, son, go and race for me tomorrow. So to me, there's not a race. I, I went the next day and I rode five races. It was pouring down rain. It was very muddy. And this horse came from last. Her name was Tom Sweetie. To anybody else, there was no value to it. But to me, it's bigger than any race that you could ever bring to me, you know? So mm-hmm. to me, it was, sorry, I'm tripped up, but it was, uh, to me, that one stood out. And that's the great thing about race horses and what they've done for me is that they bring emotion and they, they give emotion. And, you know, I've been able to share my good times and my bad times with the horses, you know, and then there's other races that I've gone on to win, such as the Dubai world cup and, and Dubai. And, and that was the richest race in the world. And, you know, everybody says, Oh, that must be your greatest one to win. And honestly, I can't tell you that it was, I've had other, other victories that were better than that. And I can't say I've ever accomplished anything bigger than that. Cause it was the biggest in the world, but, I was going through a divorce. I was, you know, not in a happier, as happy a place as I was. I'm still very proud that I won it, but I wish I could have gotten the experience that that race and that horse deserved in it. You know, I was very proud of the horse, proud mm-hmm. of him, but I didn't walk back with that feeling of accomplishment that I would have if I was a happier person. So it just depends on, on what horse. And there's been so many races that I can relate something emotional to that made me feel great about. And, you know, it's, it's been a blessing all throughout the good ones and the bad ones. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that, particularly the story okay. with your father. There, and it's, it's interesting. I think how you can sometimes, you know, people say, oh, you know, people hide in their work, or or they they tend to just go with the work as a bit of a, an escape path. And it's interesting how you know how sometimes things aren't going great in life, and and tragic things happen to all of us from from losing parents and, and family and friend members to perhaps you know some other things going on like you said you went through a divorce so that's still a 
pretty pretty traumatic thing and stressful thing to go to yeah. and how, how however though whenever them things are happening in your life you can still get on the horse and just channel that's keep that between oh, you and the bottom and bring that bring that energy through right. yeah, it's, it's a magical thing and i know i've been there not at the same scale as yourself but when you're when things aren't going great in life and you just stick yourself into work sometimes it can uh you can still get some great results and, oh, and yeah. use Use the use the things that aren't going so well to fire you up and power you through. Right. Mm. Has there ever been a moment in your in your career? There may have been many where you've thought, "I'm I'm done with this. I'm I'm throwing in the towel. I've I've just had enough of it." Um, no, I don't think so. I'm getting close to the point where I say I'm done. Mm. But it's not about throwing in the towel. I'll walk away from there with that finish line flag saying I made it and I did it well and proud, but I've never been to a point where I was frustrated and, or anything else and said, I've, I've had enough and getting out. I just, I know it's my time. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm now 50 and I still enjoy riding the horses. But if I, if I'm not continually riding the ones on the level that I was getting accustomed to, mm-hmm. I want to move on. Now's the time. And the, the you know, the universe is telling me like it's time for that transition. And I've mm-hmm. been, totally cool with it. like the fact that my business is a little bit slow and I've just been so happy. It's like, I know it's just doing that. It's slowing down. So it's given me the time to work on my future and just send me on my way in full speed running. So. Yeah. Just gen- just gently pushing you on yes. and you're just hearing out of the calling and going, yeah, I'm, I'm almost right. I'll be with you. I'll be right with you. <laughs> yeah. I know the, I know the feeling. It's funny, and, and you know, we were chatting before we came online that I've been a plumber for many years, and um, it's a it's a decision I've made to to jump out of that now. It's it's just I feel like almost like like yourself in in a way how you do with being a jockey that I've I've done all the accolades. It's a very different thing, but you know, I've worked for myself. I've worked for big multinational companies. I've worked for small companies, and and you get to a point where you just think. Yeah, what else is there for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can stay here doing this for a long time. Um, it started to have its effect on my body, actually, my back, my hips, and my knees. I don't know if I don't know if being a right. jockey has effect on your body as well, but um, you just think, how much longer can I keep doing this? Right, and ignoring what what the next chapter is and what my, you know, what the next calling for me is, because you're starving yourself of of living, of living the next chapter of your life and particularly if that involves helping others, which I know it does for both of us speaking and using our voice to help inspire and motivate others and help them unlock the, the perhaps the path to their goals and dreams. You know, the, the longer you stay where you are, I'll tell you who put it very well, actually, and it's a Madonna song. I do like a bit of Madonna. <laughs> There's a song, um, I can't remember the title of the song, but the lyrics are, you only get so much from one place before it becomes the more time you spend, the more time you waste. And I think that's, that's a really good way to put it. So thanks, Madonna, for helping me out with that line. I'll let her know you said that. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks for that. One of our homes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one of many, I, I, I expect. Has it had a, a bit of a toll on your body being a jockey for so long? Um. There's at times it has. I'm very lucky that I don't feel the long-term effects of it. I mean, I get a little sore in my back or in Mm. my knees, but, you know, I'm always – 
crouched over running a horse is pulling on you. I mean, that's just common stuff, but you know, I've broken 30 something bones, you know, from my head to my toe. So, you know, I should, I should feel worse than I do, but I've kept really good shape of myself. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are in much worse shape than I am. And, and uh, so I actually feel, feel great. I feel better than I, or as good as I ever have. I mean, I'm extremely fit and I'm always taking care of myself. I get, you know, I'm always out running for a long period of my career. I had to lose weight all the time, much like they say like wrestlers or boxers, but the difference is I have to do it every day. A boxer can do it and then he can put on 15 pounds before he fights 24 hours later. I have to lose weight and then it's, I get on the scale before and after every race to make sure I'm the same way. But you know, I, for many years, I fluctuated a minimum of 2000 pounds a year. So when you weigh 115 to 118 pounds and you're fluctuating 2000 pounds, I mean, there were, you know, there were days that I was losing five, six, seven pounds. And if I lost it that day, it would all be about running, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, plastic suits on, whatever it was. I didn't like the sauna too much. So I would just run for miles and miles and miles. But after the races, even if you just drink water, you gain that six, seven pounds back. So you fluctuate 14 pounds in a day. And the most I ever lost in a day was, was uh, 10 pounds and did that one time. And I didn't feel good. That's way too much. <laughs> the, the day my son was born was 20 years ago, but I remember we went to the hospital at like three o'clock and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I got, I know I've got to balance this time racing today. Plus I'm in the hospital and you know, it's like, so I would stand there with my wife and then I'd check on her and then I'd run outside cause it was taking a long labor and I'd run outside and I'd run miles around the streets around the hospital in a plastic suit, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, come back in and check on her and kept going out. And I lost, I lost nine pounds throughout that morning. And it wasn't because I was nervous. It was because I had to ride the races, but I ended up winning four that day and had a beautiful son. So it was a win-win. That's a great day. Uh, That is a winning day. (laughs) It's interesting what you say about cutting weight though. It's not something of, I'm something I'm aware of in, in uh, the boxing world, but I suppose it was something aware. I was aware of actually in the jockey world, just not something I'd thought about and cutting weight like that. It's, um, you know, it must take a lot of energy out of you to do that. Are you essentially yeah, not right. eating while you're doing it? Pardon me? So I said, are you essentially not eating as well while you're doing it? No, I, I always eat. I, I, I eat small portions, but even even now I don't have to worry about my weight any longer. But I, I eat small portions because that's what's comfortable to me. I, I've mm. always eaten healthy. So I was always had the nutrition in me. But, you know, I get on the scale on a, on a busy day. I get on the scale. If I rode nine races, I have to officially weigh in. 18 times because I have to go in front of the officials before the race and after the race. Plus I've done it four or five times before I get to the races to see if I'm losing enough weight. I mean, mm. it's very common for me to be on a scale, you know, nowadays it's not as much, but I mean, in my busy days, it was easily 15 to 25 times a day. I would have to get on a scale, whether it was at home getting ready or during the races. So, you know, it's, it, it was something that I never looked at it as this is terrible. I don't, you know, I wish I didn't have to do this. To me, they said I would be too big when I started riding. I found a way to do it for 34 years, so I never looked at it as saying, this really sucks. I looked at it as saying, look, these three hours are part of my job. I get to do what I do for those four hours or five hours because I do this. So by me doing that, you know, all the other jockeys are like, how can you always be in a good mood? You're never drained. I'm like, I'm doing this because I love what I do there. And so it was my mindset about losing weight that said, you know, you wake up some days, and think, how am I going to do this? And you do it because there, you know, people ask me, how, how could you do that?
and you either do it or you don't get to live your dream, you do it. And so to me, it wasn't that hard, no matter how many miles in a plastic suit in the snow or in the rain or in the sun, whatever it may be, you just do it. Yeah. Just get it done. Right. Mm -hmm. When you, when you, you, you live in your calling and you just accept that it's part and parcel, it's all part and parcel of it. The, the hard times, the times, the bad times, right. You just push through, you know, it's, they say, um, you're living, your calling is something you do so well that you'll do it for free, but you, sorry. Something you, you something you love so much you'll do it for free, but people you do so well, people will pay you to do it. Thank right, God so. I do. <laughs> Thank God I do, right? <laughs> but I, yeah. do, I, still, I still love getting on them and going, I would do it for free many times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure, yeah. But it's always handy when the checks come, right? It's always okay. nice. It's always, always helps, helps along the way. Now, I'd like to, and I know you've already told me about this background, but I'd like to tell everyone who's watching that background behind you. I did wonder if it was a green screen, and then you said, no, I'm not that tech savvy. So tell us about the, the board behind you there. This is a big board that I got from Hollywood Park, where Hollywood Park was a, back in the 50s, 60s, and on up um, through, the, through the late 80s and early 90s. It was one of the premier racetracks in the country. And this is Bill Shoemaker, and he was one of the well, most well-known jockeys in the world. And this racetrack was demolished in 1990-something. I don't know what, what the year was exactly, or maybe a little later than that. But before it was, it was demolished, I took this out of there. And now um, they've revamped the property after demolishing it, and now it just opened up this year as the Los Angeles Rams new stadium. So mm -hmm. um, actually the track went into, like, 2000 and change but yeah so this was a uh, something that was hanging outside the jocks room and i was able to get it out of there before they demolished everything because i would see that walking in there every day and you know I, these were my idols when i was a kid and then i got to ride with bill shoemaker and some of the greats and wonderful it was uh yeah i didn't know how i was going to get it out of there or, but i was getting it out of there I, there was 12 screws in it and i'm like before the doors shut and the tractors come i'll be back and i took out 10 of them Ten of the screws. I left the two in the corner up for like three weeks before I could figure it. And the races were still going, still going. And finally, that last day, I found a way, and I've got it in my house. So, <laughs> good job. Yeah, what a great story. Now, um, your your charity that you that you started, uh, the Giving Circle, and I, lo I love the way that you just you just took essentially everything that you do every day, and you just replace one word from winning to giving. Uh, I, would like to, I would like to take credit for the, for the name, but that was a collaboration of many of the people that were working. And um, the, the logo is a bunch of um, bodies standing around holding hands. And one hand, if it's going to, if you're going to connect with everybody in the world, there can't be a hand left undone. At the end of it, the last two connect, it's a big circle. So we, we just thought, you know, it's one people, we're all the same and we hold hands, we, we make a circle of life. And, and uh, that was. That was where the name came from, but it, it started out, my friend and I, he was living in upstate New York. I was down in, in Long Island, New York, and after Hurricane Katrina hit so hard in Louisiana and Mississippi in 2005, they were just devastated, and the country was very good about helping people with the needs that they had, whether it was diapers, whether it was money, whether it was food, and him and I just got together and started thinking what about the children? You know, it's like they don't know or understand what's going on, but we need to find a way. What can we do for them? 
to bring a smile to their face or some joy in these times of struggle when they're living in a shelter with other families because their house was torn apart. And so after some thoughts, we decided to just call it, call it a Cajun Christmas, but see how many toys we could gather up. And again, we lived in New York. It's a long way down to Louisiana. But we started calling schools and friends and different people and not asking for money, but toys. And we wanted it to go just to the children and make sure that the money didn't go somewhere else. And it was amazing. You know, all of a sudden I had to pull my two cars out of the garage and it filled my two car garage. And then I got a storage and he did the same up, up in Northern Saratoga. And all of a sudden it was like, we had two storages and three storages. It was just ridiculous, like excitement. And before like in late November, we were able to have two semis completely full drove from um, everything donated drive from New York down to Louisiana and supply 6,000 children with smiles and, and gifts for Christmas. So that's where it all started. And, you know, we just thought if two people could do this and we, and we felt like the joy and everything else, everybody gave us something. It wasn't like, Oh, here you go. Here you go. You know, it's like they were happy to do it. You know, what, what can we do? How can we help? And then it just got better and better. And then from there, it just grew because, we realize there's so many people that want to help, but they don't have a platform to go out and do it. There's a lot of people that are sitting at home saying, oh, I wish I could help them, but they don't know who to contact or how to do it. And one person alone may not be that strong, but you join forces with two people that have four other people that have six other people. And all of a sudden you've got an army hmm. and that's how the giving circle was formed. You know, it's um, Mississippi and Louisiana. We've built several homes. We built several homes after uh, storm damage and, and, uh, but the giving circle is not about one particular thing or, or one group of people that we want to help. We, we've, you know, built, we've built, you know, going to build ramps for people that are getting older or now that are, you know, physically challenged and have wheelchairs. So they have steps at their house. We go build ramps for them. We built in Saratoga, we opened a homeless shelter for in the wintertime, you know, people were just sitting out in the snow. And so we've got a homeless shelter there, but then we've, you know, it's just expanded so much and I can't take all the credit for it because I shouldn't take any of it for it. It was an idea that two people had and they've just run with it because of the army that we built. But it's amazing because now our foundation has built two schools and we went to Uganda, Africa, which is the, was the poorest village in, in Africa, um, built the first freshwater well they ever had, built two schools, but built a medical center. There's a lot of... Um, deaf children, um, some are blind. There's a lot of deaf children in, in Uganda. And I don't know if that's what that's from and why so many in one area, but um, mm. all of our children have gone through schools. Every child has to learn sign language so that they can all communicate and not be different. They're all friends with each other. And we've you know supported them. And when my children were younger, I had them each sponsor a child and I sponsored children. And you know it's very minimal fee that it took us, but I still talk to a wonderful lady that's now teaching um, from Africa and she's just a wonderful lady. And, and you know, she calls me dad cause she looked up to me and I helped her get through school, but I did very little, you know, it's, it was just, again, your voice, my voice and everybody else's voice can do the same thing. It's about the army of people that are wanting to help and you put yourself in, in an environment where others want to help as well. And all of a sudden, it's not about how am I going to do this because it's just you, Jake, or me, Aaron. It's about how are we going to do this and how are we going to allocate it because we've got so many people 
they can handle this and that. And it's like, it, it just becomes so infectious and, and in such a great way that, I don't know, it's been unbelievable now. So now we've done so much there and now we've moved on to Afghanistan and we just Pretty try and help. So, you know, we continue to do things in America and we'll help anybody that needs help. So yeah, it's the givingcircle.org if anybody wants to look at it. Yeah, I just dropped a link in the comments there as well so everyone can go straight into that. But yeah, it's brilliant. Well, well done on, on what you've created there and the team that you've, you know, collaborated with to make it happen. And like you say, and we've touched on it again and again, it seems to be a theme of, of this interview that just a team-driven effort, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered how many people you wanted to help on your own. You could have done it, but it would have just taken you so much longer, right? So it's about yeah. having the team. And the feeling Sorry. you're getting. I mean, no, the, look at the group we're in. If you were able to go through what you've done, you might have been just as focused. You might have gone through the same patterns. But if we didn't have the chat that we have amongst each other and the cheerleaders that we all are for each other, would it have yeah. been... Would it have been as rewarding for you if you just did it alone? You know, I mean, no. it's, you get the power from the vibe and the energy and the support and the love. And to me, it's like, I just get chills again. It's like, to me, I just love the way it all builds. And it's, you know, anything that's successful wasn't done alone. No. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's finding the right people as well. It's, mm. you know, sometimes, and let's be honest, sometimes you find people in your life that, Aren't that all that helpful? Right. <laughs> so I found that I found a, found a few of them, right? And I, I tend to find that as you find more of them, you get kind of used to what they're going to look like, and you get better at avoiding yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, it's true, right? You get you better at kind of seeing them coming in and get better at avoiding them. But yeah, just forming groups of and particularly, I've got a charitable charitable project um, as well that I'm a part of called mission rainwater uh, as i said earlier i'm a plumber and i started doing this work i was actually in in i go back home to the uk most years and spend christmas with the family um when i can i'm not sure if i'll be able to do that this year but mm -hmm. last year i did and i was blessed to do that and then when i got back to australia in january which is the height of summer is is around christmas time and runs through to january in australia it's completely backwards to the rest of the world of course and I'd really got a feeling of the gravity of these bushfires and the devastation that they were, they were causing this year. They just seem to be getting more and more intense every year. As I know, um, in California, it's, it seems, seems to be a similar kind of story there, right? But um, I got on a few Facebook groups and, and with a few other plumbers and got in touch with some people and we were like, what can we do? You know, these people have had their, their water tanks melted, which is in the, a lot of these rural areas, they collect rainwater off their roof. It gets collected into a tank and that's what they use for for showering for, for drinking and stuff and that, that's fine that works for them but when the tank gets melted to the ground or or the supply line to the tank gets melted you know they're left in in rural australia without any water supply and a lot of them had been you know just showering or using uh bottled water to, to drink with which is you know let alone having no sanitation you know you've got no water it doesn't matter if you've got a toilet set up it's not flushing it's not working without any running water so i jumped in a facebook group and within a couple of weeks i was out there um in the northeast of victoria installing tanks and, and water supply lines to people of course the government 
you know, wanting to help and do their effort, but it takes a lot of time often for, for governments to get into action. A lot of decisions and things have to come together. So we just decided that we were just going to get out there and just and just start doing it. Now it's 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 wound on and on and on and, and grown and grown and grown. And like you say, it just started with me and, and Dwayne, another guy who's a plumber. We just he he just kind of threw the idea around around at the pub over a few drinks and then it came into being. Um, and now we've we've teamed up with uh, other charities, uh, namely Give It and uh, a guy called Pete Williams from Deloitte, and we've come together to we've helped over we've installed over twenty five tanks now. We've got forty five more to go, and the list is just growing all the time. So, and that that's, that's you know over quick mass forty five. It's over seventy families that we've we've helped. That's you know, good, good for you. That's yeah, good. yeah. It's and I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like yeah. The, the only reason I am involved in with it, with it is to help others. You know, that's the, the the greatest among you will be your servant. It's a line that I've heard a few times, and and I truly believe it's 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 true. It's as simple as that. You know, if you if you um, devote a bit of your time to helping other people and um helping them through their struggles and hard times i mean water's just something that we take for granted you turn the tap on and it's there until they're doing some works on your street one day and the water's off and you go and just you get a brown trickle come out and you you're like well what's going on here you know uh, it's, it's it leads me to a story that i remember when i was back back home in the uk and my housemate messaged me and he goes hey mate the water's not coming out the taps it's all off everywhere do you know what's going on I was like, hey, mate, I'm a plumber, but I'm about 20,000 miles away. I'm not too sure what's up. You'll probably have to. Are they doing some works in the street or something like that? And he goes out and said, yeah, they're doing some work in the street. But it, it just it's something we massively take take for granted that it's just there, much like the light switch. It's just, it's just there. And when you don't realize what a valuable source of life it is until it gets taken away from you. So, right. yeah. Mission Rainwater is, is the charity I, I, I support and work with, and the givingcircle.org is where you can find out more about Aaron's charity. Now tell me, Aaron, what's your what's your kind of aspirations and, and goals for the charity going forward? Well, we just it just continues to grow. So, you know, the great thing about it is we wanted Uganda, Africa to be self-sustainable. So, you know, we've created jobs. Um, you know that they've been able to do we've created farmland we've, we've you know raised cattle and different things to where they can continue to raise cattle where they can get their own foods and just the schooling and everything so you know we want everybody to be able to do things for themselves and you know you see the confidence that they have now and they see it's possible and you know when when we first started there one of the things we, we did for them was give them their first playground set. They'd never seen a swing, a slide. I mean, imagine that as a, like they had never, they didn't know what to do with it. They looked at it like, what is this? And, you know, wow. they didn't know how something to play on. And now they go down the slides and love it and different things. And so, you know, you, if, whatever we can do to put a smile on people's faces and if it can, if they can be self-sustainable to where they can get on, I'm sure we'll always have a presence there, but it's about, what we've done and what they can do for the ones coming up behind them now. And right. you, know, you, you leave, you leave them the knowledge that they can pass on is more than anything you can give them, you know, whether it's the food for the day or whatever it might be, it's the knowledge how to 
create that food or how to work for that job that creates the money that can buy the food and you give that to your children and that knowledge and experience and so it continues to grow and you know it's uh I have no idea where it goes again once I once I step away from racing I'll have more time to be more present with my friend Mark Bertrand who co-founded it with me and and uh he's been leading the ship the whole way and you know I'd love to get more involved again and, and give him that help that he wants and to me, I just, you know, I want to travel around the world and, and speak and help people. And, you know, if I can you, can, you can always put it in timing while if I'm going out to Africa or going out to England or wherever to do something that we're, we have a project in, boy, why don't I book some speaking engagements at the time? And, you know, so, you know, I think there's just a lot of things they can do and I'm excited about it. Yeah, wonderful. It's, it's one thing I've touched on there is like what you said is, you know what you're doing and you know the premise of how you're helping people and it's a great initiative actually it's something that that, that rung true with me there is you know teach the people the knowledge of how to sustain it for themselves and that all they've got to do is pass that knowledge on and the right. charity the charity work continues perpetually essentially forever from from the seed you've planted and the help you've done right. in, in the first initiative you know something else you say is i'm not too sure about where it's going you just know that you want to help people and you'll be doing more of it and I think that's that's something we've been discovering in that in the thinking into results group. It's just decide on what you want, decide on that what we call the the C type goal, decide on what it is. You don't have to know how you're going to do it or why, but you just decide what you want, when you want it to happen by, and the, everything is going to come together to make it happen for you. And and then it's it's amazing how when you make that decision. And I can relate like I have recently with, with quitting my job and deciding to go full time in in entrepreneurship and, and really earning getting my own and generating my own income is that things just start to come together for you once you once you've made the decision. Things people pop up the people pop up that I haven't spoken to for many months and they're like, Oh, how are you going out on your own? I've got some work for you here, I've got some work for you there, or got got a contract for you here or uh, one of my worries was um, I didn't have the right tools. And then a, a guy popped up and he goes, hey, I'm just finishing up my business. I'm, I'm selling a load of tools. And I was like, that's exactly what I need. It's just it's amazing how it all starts to come together um, once you make the decision. Right. Hmm. That's great stuff. All right, Aaron. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. An honor to be on with you. And I know we're going to keep climbing together and, you know, with this whole group, this journey we're on together, it's a lot of fun. It's great that we can all communicate, whether we're in the same country, same towns, or, or different ones. And it's a, it's a, a great group, strength and courage and love that everybody's sharing. And you know, I wish everybody the best of luck. And it's an honor to be your third guest. I'm going to look back years from now and you'll be like, this is episode 54,612. <laughs> I was his third. I was number three. Absolutely. I number it out zero 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 three. So in my that. mind, I already know there's going to be. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That. Yeah, how it works. <laughs> Brilliant, Aaron. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure having you, and I know I'll speak to you again soon. Yes, my pleasure. Have a great one. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. Live your dreams. Thank you. You too.